Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We'll be finishing Acts chapter 20 next week. Seems like we've been in Acts chapter 20 for like two years. Not really. But uh, we're... We're, we're, we're doing it. We're, 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 we're making our way through Paul's message to the Ephesian elders, what we've been covering in Acts chapter 20 and find in verses 17 through 38 of chapter 20. And in part 9, our, our main text is going to be Acts chapter 20, verse 32. But first, let's read verses 28 through 31. Paul, to the Ephesian elders, he says in verse 28, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. As a reminder, Paul in this message to the Ephesian elders is mainly doing three things. He's reminded them already of his ministry in the past. He's pointed out some things about his ministry in the present. And now in these final verses, verses 28 to 35, he's preparing. He's he's warning. He's he's exhorting these elders regarding things in the future, and then also giving some final commendations, encouragements, exhortations. And, and last week, we spent our time and spent some time uh, looking at some of the reasons Paul gave these elders the charge in verse 28 to take heed to themselves and to all the flock. That, that part of why Paul gave that charge was because of the dangers that he went on to warn them about in verses 29 and 30 regarding how false teachers would come in from the outside, not sparing the flock, how, how leaders would rise up on the inside to mislead, draw away the disciples after themselves. We also saw the importance of, of watching and remembering, not just for the elders of the church, but for all of us as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we received in that message a strong exhortation to be equipped with and grounded in truth as those who have been trusted with the only source of truth in all of the universe, and that's the word of God. And so with that context in mind, let's read verse 32. Paul says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I want us to understand that while this was first a word to these elders, this would have also been a word for the rest of the church. See, I don't doubt that when these elders returned to the city of Ephesus, that the rest of the church would have wanted to know what was so important that Paul called for the elders to travel those 30 miles from Ephesus to the city of Miletus, the port town of Miletus, to meet with him. And I don't doubt that the elders would have shared the things Paul shared with them, which were 
some pretty heavy and sobering things, especially Paul saying, you know what? Chains and tribulations awaited him in Jerusalem, that they would see his face no more, that savage wolves were going to come in not sparing the flock, that among the leaders in the church, men would rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. You know, up to this point in Paul's message to them, and then later as these elders would have relayed Paul's message, you can imagine sort of the emotional and spiritual heaviness that these things could have brought. Until what Paul shared in verse 32. See, in my mind, when, you know, what what Paul now shares in verse 32 would have been like diving into a cold pool on a hot day. Or like drinking a cold glass of water after you know, strenuous activity out in the heat. That these things would have been refreshing and encouraging and would have restored some needed perspective after whatever discouragement or anxiety might have crept in as Paul shared up to this point. They would never see Paul's face again. And yes, false teachers and misleading leaders would be a danger to the flock in the future, but things were not hopeless. Paul now commended his brethren, entrusted them, put them into the care and protection of the Lord. You know, by saying this, he's reminding them that they belonged to God. And God cared infinitely more for them than Paul ever could. Could you imagine the sort of weight of responsibility that would be there in these minds of the Ephesian elders when he starts to say, savage wolves and and some of you are going to rise up and mislead. Like, Can you imagine how heavy that could have been in the moment? And Paul's like, I'm leaving. I'm not going to be around to help you. I'm I'm not going to be here to help protect you. I'm not going to be able to be your cheerleader encouraging you as these dangers come. But guess what? I'm commending you to the Lord. I'm putting you back into the care of the Lord. Who you really need is the Lord. And I think for leaders in the church, but then as for the church of the whole, it is Hugely comforting to know that we are in the care of the one who spoke and it was. Like the one who said, let there be light and there was light. That same God is the one who cares for us. He's the one who has us. He's the one who views us as his flock, his sheep that he loved enough to shed his blood to purchase. And to know, God, you have us. There are dangers that are going to come against us. There are dangers that might rise up from within us, but God, you have us. You've got us, Lord. And how we need to be reminded of that continually This commendation of Paul was a writing of perspective. These leaders and the church in Ephesus were not to be dependent upon Paul. 
No, they were to be dependent upon Jesus. And, and Paul was entrusting them into the most capable hands they could ever be in the Lord's hands. Yes, they were losing the presence and, and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but the Lord was with them. He would never leave them or forsake them, forsake them and his ministry was going to continue on. Again, Paul commended, he entrusted, he, he put them into the care and protection of the Lord, but he also commended them to the word of God's grace, which he says was able to build them up and give them an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. These leaders and the church there still had the word of God's grace, which was able to accomplish these crucial things spiritually in all of their lives. Jesus, his word, and his grace was more than enough and, and was what they truly needed. And there's an important element to this where the elders were being reminded at the same time to never leave behind the word of God's grace. God's word, that the gospel message contained in his word, that they were to stay committed to the word of God and his gospel and always keep their lives and ministries, that the church that the Lord had entrusted to them, keeping all of those things about the Lord and his word of grace. And we can, we can make the church, we can make our lives about so many different things. But truly, our lives are to be about the Lord and the word of his grace. Everything else can fall away, but not those two things. Paul commended these church leaders to the word of God's grace because he never wanted them to depart from the simplicity and the all-sufficiency of the gospel message and the grace that's found in Jesus and having a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But this emphasis that the word of God is a word of grace also reminds us that these things that Paul shares in verse 32 are a result of God's grace toward us and the work of his grace in us. As I said, while this was first a word to these elders, these, this would have also been a word to the rest of the church, and this includes us. Guys, it is crucial that Jesus' church, his people, are rooted and grounded in truth, in God's word. And at least part of this, as we looked at last Sunday, is seen in us being able to spot and fend off dangers to the flock, both from outside and from inside the church. But being rooted and grounded in truth is not where it's supposed to end. Paul commended the Ephesian elders and all the believers in the church of Ephesus to the Lord and to the word of his grace. The reason I say that is because a church, believers that are strong in truth, that are strong in doctrine, but weak in or lacking in grace as a church, or who are lacking grace as a people, are a church and a people who have 
lost sight, at least to some degree, of who Jesus is, of the example that he gave, of what he died to usher in and shed his blood to bring us into, and that is this new covenant of grace. You know, in the beginning of the Apostle John's gospel account, I love the ways that John describes Jesus. John wrote this about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 1, verse 14, and then in verses 16 and 17. John 1, 1, John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, he goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Notice, full of grace and truth. And then in verses 16 and 17, he says, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And while the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Grace and truth are not to be separated. Jesus was full of both. Both came through him and poured forth from him. And, and, and this is important, and the reason I'm stressing this is because oftentimes as believers... We can be strong in one and maybe not so strong in the other. You know, we see in what happens a lot of time in churches that have become more liberal is that they become, they, they become so focused on what they perceive. It's not truly grace because Paul would even write in Romans, do we sin the more that grace may abound? He says, heaven forbid. Right? They think, gosh, we just need a we just got to be about grace. That's what God's about, just grace, grace, grace. But they kind of leave truth to the side. And because truth is left to the side, sin gets diminished. Sin gets excused. Sin becomes redefined. But then on the other side of the, uh, of the equation, you have people who feel so strongly like, gosh, we have to be about truth. And, and there's such a, there's such a strong emphasis on truth that sometimes what happens is that grace becomes to get, uh, starts to be left to the side. And what becomes, and what becomes is more of, of a rigid, almost pharisaical sort of Christianity where even people's own standards of righteousness become the thing that others have to measure up to. But grace and truth are supposed to be sort of Siamese twins, if you will, not to be separated. They're supposed to be together because Jesus was full of both. And because Jesus was full of both, because grace and truth are both crucial, they are to be present in us as the people of Jesus, as if we want to live like Jesus and if we want to 
rightly represent Jesus. We consider last week why it's important that we are strong in truth. But I want us to consider today, in light of what Paul says in verse 32, why it's important that we are also strong in grace. That we are a grace-receiving and grace-extending church. A grace-receiving and grace-extending people and person. And a people person. I want us to do that by looking at these things Paul says are a result of the word of God's grace. Really, a result of the grace of God toward us in verse 32. Notice in verse 32 that we're told his grace is able to build us up. This Greek word build up carries the sense of constructing to make nearer to fullness or completion conceived of as constructing something further. Understand that any sort of growth, any sort of building up, any sort of maturing spiritually that happens in your and my life happens because of the enabling work of God's grace toward us and in us. We're not built up because we just tried so hard and you know what? We made the growth happen through our get-or-done sort of attitude. Like we became the crossfit of spiritual building up us. I don't know why crossfit, but just crossfit people are gnarly. Like they're hardcore. Like why are you doing all of those things? I'm just in awe. I'm in awe of many of these people. It hurts my back even to think about some of the things that they do when they're working out. No, you and I grow because God in his grace is doing that building up, that constructing work in us as we humble ourselves before him and submit ourselves to him. Guys, you want to know what the, one of the greatest detriments to your spiritual growth is? Pride. You know why pride? Because God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. He humbles the proud. You and I will find ourselves growing the most in the grace of God when we are humbled before the face of God. When we stay in that place of going, God, I need you. God, I, I need to grow and I can't make this happen. Lord, I, I, want to, I want to see that growth that you want to see happen in my life. But Lord, I can't make it happen. I'm tr- I've tried in my own flesh and my own efforts. I've tried to sort of put in the work, so to speak, spiritually. But growth in grace comes through a people that are humbled before the Lord who recognize that it can only happen if God is doing it. One of the ways that we could define grace, not that this is the only way, is that grace is when God is doing something. 
maybe you've heard people make sort of like an acrostic or something for, you know, the letters of grace, you know, and God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. But God wants to accomplish that growth, that building up in our lives. He desires for that to take place. Check out what we're told in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Paul in Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Notice the responsibility that Paul says there. He says, walk in it. That means that there's just a, that the Lord's doing something. He's accomplishing something in our lives. The response from us is, respond. (laughs) Walk in it. Walk in those things that the Lord's doing. Submit yourself to what the Lord's trying to accomplish in your life so that you're rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. Peter, though, in his final letter, the last verse, as Peter signs off in a way his life before being martyred, He says, but grow in the grace, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Look, our default, if we're not growing and being built up in the grace of Jesus, will be to resort to religious doings, works, performance, where we try to relate to the Lord on the basis of what we do or what we don't do, instead of relating to Him on the basis of His grace, of what He's already done for us in Christ Jesus. And if we're not growing and being built up in the grace of Jesus, we will not be able to show and extend the grace of Jesus to anyone else. See, we can't show others grace if we aren't first receiving God's grace and then growing in his grace daily. You can't give something that you don't have. Right? Makes sense? If if you're not receiving of God's grace, have you ever noticed that when you're not receiving of God's grace, your interactions with other people become graceless? Your words become graceless. Your words aren't seasoned with salt. They're not with grace, as Paul would write about. In order to be a grace-receiving and grace-extending church and disciples of Jesus individually, we've got to be daily humbling ourselves before the Lord so we can receive grace then growing daily in our understanding of God's grace, the new covenant of grace we've been brought into by the blood of Jesus so that the grace we've received, we can then show others. 
But notice also in verse 32 that by his grace we're given an inheritance, which also tells us that we are heirs by his grace. This Greek word for inheritance carries the sense of any piece of property that passes by law to an heir on the death of, an, of the owner. Sometimes regarding God's promises to his people like the land of Israel or a heavenly kingdom. The, the interesting thing about us receiving an inheritance, being given an inheritance by the Lord, is that inheritances only come once someone has died and willed things to others. The reason this is interesting is because though Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. He could have said, nope, keeping the inheritance for myself, I'm alive again. Psych! I was willing to extend that inheritance for three days, but, you know, I'm alive again forevermore. So keeping it for myself, inheritance is mine. And you know what? He would have perfectly, perfectly been within right as king of kings and lord of lords, to keep that for himself, to keep heaven for himself. But in his grace, he wanted to extend that inheritance to us. Check out what we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. It's not affected by inflation or a pandemic or how the stocks are doing. Reserved in heaven for you. Who's the you? those who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, if the Lord only just provided us with salvation and nothing else, that work of grace alone would have been enough to blow us away for all eternity. Lord, you saved me. You saved me. You kept me from an eternity in hell. That would have been enough. That alone would have been enough for us for all eternity to, in our own minds, be mulling over. God, you are so good. How could you do that for me? Lord, I just rebelled against you. I, was a, I, I sinned against you. I did nothing to earn your salvation, and you saved me anyways. That alone, if that was all he did, would have been enough. For us to sing that song that was written, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me, it would have been enough. But he didn't only provide us with salvation. No, he went even further in his grace and has given us an inheritance that we couldn't earn or deserve. Eternal rewards, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus that cannot be corrupted or defiled, and that won't fade away. And these things for you and me are being reserved in heaven because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Our God is a God who loves 
in his grace to bless his children, to bless us. By grace, giving us what we don't deserve, we can never earn. And far greater than any eternal rewards, what's amazing is that you and I get to be with Jesus for all eternity. That is grace. That is grace. I mean, Jesus got a taste of what it was like to be around us for about 33 years. I mean, if I was in Jesus' shoes, that would have ruined my taste. I would have been like, cool, 33 years was too many. I don't need an eternity with these people. (laughs) But he wants us. He wants us. He wants to bring us in. He wants to give us of what's his. The glories of heaven. You may, not get an, you, may, you may never get an inheritance on this earth. You may be in a position where that's not something for you. Don't be bummed about that. The Lord has an eternal inheritance that moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. That's what's waiting for you and me. That's grace. But notice lastly in verse 32 that by his grace we are among those who are sanctified. That word sanctified means to make holy or set apart or or consecrate or, or to dedicate something. Now, something powerful here is the way Paul said this word in the Greek language, because the verb he used is in the perfect tense. Mind blown, right? Perfect tense, like that just, did that blow anybody's mind? No. That was a joke. According to some people much smarter than me, that the perfect tense was used to describe a completed verbal action that occurred in the past but which produced a state of of being or a result that exists in the present. Now, now why that's so powerful is that when when we first put our faith in Jesus Christ and we received his salvation by grace, God in his grace declared us positionally to be sanctified, to be holy, to be set apart, to be dedicated, to be consecrated to him so that while he's still presently sanctifying us, changing and transforming us daily by his grace to be made more and more into the image of Jesus positionally in the eyes of God, regardless of our struggles and our failures and the ways that we are not yet like Jesus, In his grace, he sees us as those who are already sanctified, who are holy. And that gives me an even greater and deeper appreciation of what Jesus has done in my life by his gospel and his grace. And I hope that knowledge and truth does that in your heart too. 
You know, I'm so thankful that when the Father sees me and sees you, if we're disciples of Jesus, if we've been saved by Jesus, that he sees us differently because he sees us in Christ, sees what Jesus has done for us, sees the righteousness of Jesus that's been imputed to us, that's been put in our account. And because of all that, when the Father sees us, he sees us as righteous and accepted and holy to him. Guys, you don't have to earn God's acceptance. The moment that you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, he accepted us in the beloved. The moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he he was able to look at us because we are now in Christ and say, righteous, holy. And we look at ourselves and we're going, I'm unrighteous. And I am far less than holy. And at times I feel like I need to earn God's acceptance. But those things are me. They're not the Lord. To know that positionally in the eyes of God, he, he looks at us and he goes, you are sanctified. That is a powerful truth that, that needs to stay in the front of our minds because we as people will always have that tendency, that pull in our flesh to want to earn something with God. To, to, to maybe please him in a way where we're more accepted. But know that those things will never work. And that's why this new covenant is a covenant of grace. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about what he has provided for us. A couple passages of scripture came to my mind as I was thinking about this area of sanctification, the, the positional and then the practical. Positional being who we are in Christ, what, what God has done and, and how he sees us because we are, are saved by the blood of Christ. But then this practical sanctification where daily he's still changing and transforming us by his grace, by the power of his spirit. Two passages of scripture I want to show. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth says this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. All those things that I just listed, as he's talking to the church in Corinth, that was you guys. That was you. As I'm listing those things off, and you're, that you're going, yep, I was doing that. That was my life. He says, but you were washed. But you, notice, were 
sanctified. That's that positional sanctification. But you were sanctified, but you were justified, declare righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And for us, we can look at that passage too and we can go, yep, that was me. I was among those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. I wasn't going to inherit it. Why? Because of my sin. My sin was separating me from God. I was choosing a lifestyle that was something that God was saying, that, that's not going to be the thing that allows you to get in. But that's not you anymore. It's not you anymore. Why? Not because you just tried so hard, but because the Lord has washed you. He's done something completely new in your life. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. All the old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. You are now sanctified and justified. And those things should cause us to say hallelujah. Because those truths are truths that should never cause anything less to come from our lips than praise you, God. Positional sanctification. But secondly, there's lots of different passages that you can find these two different areas of sanctification. But uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23 and 24 talks about that practical and present sanctification 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. You ever looked at your life and some of the struggles that you have, and you, you know, like theologically, like, I know in my head that, that God is sanctifying me. He's changing me. But have you ever come to a point where you just thought like, I don't know that I'm ever, if this thing's ever going to change. I don't know if I'll ever grow past this thing. I don't know if this is an area where I can ever find victory. I don't know if this is an area that the Lord will ever help me kind of get over and, and become different in. And, and if it was up to you, Yes, you would stay in that place. But he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. That work of sanctification is God doing it. It's God working in your character. It's God working in your habits. It's God working in your personality. It's God working in the words that you speak. It's God working in the thoughts that you have in your head. It's God working in your relationships. It's God, God working in you to be the, the man or woman of Christ that he has called you to be. God is faithful. He will do it. The work that he's begun, he will be faithful to complete it. Don't lose heart. If you're in a place of struggle or if you're in a place of weakness or you're in a place where you're going, man, I've been praying about this thing. I've been working on this thing for a long time and I'm not seeing any real huge change. Maybe you're seeing, maybe you've seen incremental changes, but it's not the dramatic change that you want to see happen. God is still working. He's not going to leave you 
how you are now. Praise God that the person you are today is not the person who you were five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he has worked his sanctifying work in your life by his grace. Look back. Look back at who you were. Such were some of you. And and take notice of those ways that God has worked, how he has changed you and praise him for those things and continue to submit your life daily to the sanctifying work of the spirit of god this grace that we've received is a grace that we are to continually grow in that we're to stand firmly in and continually walk in. It's a grace that we're to then continually extend to others. God's grace isn't meant to end with us. No, we're to be conduits of his grace. As grace would pour into us and his grace would pour out of us. That we'd be strong in both grace and truth a a church a people who extend grace why because we've received grace guys jesus drew us to, to himself through his grace he saved us by his grace he's growing us by his grace he's promised us an eternal heavenly inheritance by his grace he has sanctified us positionally and is sanctifying us practically and presently by his grace and the new testament is full of things that god has done and is doing and will do by his grace clearly we are to be a grace receiving and grace extending people that we would interact with we would deal with we would speak to others in the way that Jesus interacts with and deals with and speaks to us. And that's graciously. Again, we're to be a people who extend grace because we have received grace. This is a needed word for church leaders, but it's a word really for all of us as disciples of Jesus. There's lots for us to meditate on and pray through and and seek to apply from our study today, but I want us to prepare to take communion together as we think about what Jesus did upon the cross as he ushered in this new covenant of grace. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 said, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread, And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. These are those moments that we're reminded. When we look at this juice, 
We're being reminded of the grace of God towards us, that, that the Son of God would become man and would allow sinful men that he came to save, put him on a Roman cross and murder him. So that we could be forgiven. We could be saved. We could be sanctified. We could be justified. We could be redeemed. As we do these things in remembrance of Jesus this morning. May God's grace be at the front of our minds. Jesus, in your grace, you allowed your body to be broken whipped, beaten, nailed to a Roman cross. Jesus, you allowed your blood, your perfect blood to be shed to usher in something completely new. Because if you hadn't done that, we would still be separated. And so this morning, let's take these communion elements together. But before we do that, if there's somebody here this morning and you've not first made a decision for Jesus Christ, you've not received his salvation, I want to give an opportunity this morning to make that decision for Jesus Christ. If that's anybody this morning, not counting those that are already standing, but if that's you, stand this morning. I would love to pray for you. If that's anyone here and you're going, look, I just want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that my debt has been paid in full. I want, to, I want to receive the grace of God this morning. Let's take these communion elements and have Lainey come back up here. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice upon the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you allowed your body to be broken in a sense, Lord. Your perfect body, Lord, that was nailed to that cross. Lord, we remember that sacrifice that you made for us in giving your body in that way. And we take the communion element of this matzah this morning Remembering, Lord, the grace that's at the forefront of your sacrifice. Go ahead and take the bread together. Jesus, we hold these little juice cups that remind us Jesus, of the price that you paid, shedding your blood to, to, to purchase us, to pay our debt in full, to be able to say those words that it is finished from the cross. Jesus, thank you for, in your grace, Lord, taking our place. Lord, we deserved the punishment for our own sin, but Jesus, you took it instead. And Jesus, this morning, we thank you and we praise you that you did that for us and that, Jesus, you, you brought in that new covenant of grace ushered in by your blood. That now we can draw near, 
we have full access to the Father. That, that thing that was in the way, Lord, our sin, you have removed. And we give you thanks this morning, Jesus, and we take the juice now. Lord, we thank you again. Lord, just for our time in your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for these truths that remind us of how powerful, Lord, your grace is able to build us up. Lord, give us an inheritance and sanctify us. Lord, each one of those things is are things, Lord, that we could just keep meditating on and praying through for days and weeks and months. Lord, never, never come to the end of being blown away, Lord, by how amazing you are in providing those things for us. But Lord, God, would you once again, Lord, give us grace. Lord, you give grace to the humble. Lord, you give more grace. And so, Lord, if there's any amount of pride in us, Lord, if there's anything in us, Lord, where, God, we've not been receiving your grace, not been growing in your grace, Lord, humble us. God, that we would be recipients of your grace, even this morning, Lord, that you pour out upon us. Lord, not just so that we can experience the joy of, of your grace, but Lord, that we would be able to extend that grace to others. Lord, that grace and truth would be inseparable, Lord, in our lives as your disciples. Lord, lead us in these days. God, that we would be those examples of Jesus that this world desperately needs us to be. Strong in grace and in truth. And so, Lord, lead us. God, draw others to yourself through us. And, Lord, be glorified in and through our lives and in and through this church. And, Lord, continue to be glorified as we sing these songs of praise this morning to you. Lord, with the overflow of what you've been pouring in, even through the study of your word, Lord, come out in songs of praise, Lord. Come out from a heart that just loves you and is so in awe of you. And so, Lord, receive your praise. Lord, receive the glory that's due to your name. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.